This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today we have a distinguished um, group of experts that will speak about the U.S. Tra- um, trade and investment uh, relationship with Canada, and we'll talk about it from many different vantage points. At this point, it gives me great pleasure to introduce um, our panelists. Um, our first uh, panelist is Ian Saunders. He's the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere and Global Markets at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Following Ian, um, we have Eric Miller, who's the Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center Canada Institute. He is also president of the um, Redow um, Atomic Strategy Group, a consultancy firm that works with private and public sector clients in North America, Asia, and Latin America, focusing on trade and business matters. After um, Eric, we will have Colin um, Robinson, who is the Vice President Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Colin is a former diplomat, um, and he is a he's a regular with a global podcast. Finally, we have Kirst, um, Christine um, Stewart, who is the head uh, shape of shaping the future for media, entertainment, and innovation, and a member of the executive committee of the World Economic Forum. Christina spent a groundbreaking career working globally at the intersection of media and technology. So at this time, I'd like to kick things off with Ian. Take it away. Uh, hello, Richard, and thank you very much for that kind introduction. Certainly, I uh, wish David the best um, today. And really want to thank the Institute of the Americas for the invitation to speak today about the U.S.-Canada trade and investment relationship. The Institute has been a welcome partner in advancing North American competitiveness and innovation with the Department of Commerce in previous years. The California Chamber of Commerce and Maple Business Council have also done their part to advance the U.S.-Canada and North American relationship more broadly. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to participate in the event today to talk about the ways the administration and the department are working with Canada to build back better. I would also like to take a moment to acknowledge the other distinguished speakers on the panel who are good friends of the United States and Canada and strong advocates of the bilateral relationship. Before I launch into the the substance of of our topic for today, I wanna briefly provide an overview of the Department of Commerce's role in trade for those participants who may not be familiar. The Department of Commerce plays a critical role in facilitating international trade and promoting exports both of which are key components of this administration's economic and national security agenda. The International Trade Administration, or ITA, the bureau of which I'm a part, is the portion of commerce uh, charged with creating prosperity by strengthening the international competitiveness of U.S. industry, promoting trade and investment, and ensuring fair trade and compliance with trade laws and agreements. ITA's global footprint consists of 100 U.S.-based export assistance centers, We also have commercial service offices in more than 70 countries around the world and headquarters staff in Washington, D.C., consisting of country and industry experts. The U.S.-Canada relationship is one of enduring strength, built on broad and deep ties between our peoples, based on shared values, extensive trade, and strategic global cooperation. I'd like to offer now a sense of the size and scope of this connection, if I can. Our bilateral trade investment relationship, the world's largest and most comprehensive, supports millions of jobs on both sides of the border. Our highly integrated supply chains are the basis for daily two-way trade in goods and services that value nearly $1.7 billion. 
Canada is by far the largest market for U.S. merchandise exports overall, totaling $255 billion in 2020, and is the top export market for roughly 30 individual U.S. states. In California, Canada is the second largest export market after Mexico, accounting for 10% of all exports. The top traded goods between our two countries include transportation equipment, chemicals, oil and gas, machinery, computer and electronic products, and food, a very diverse range. Canada is the leading supplier of imported energy for the United States, and our electrical grids are closely connected. Cross-border investment between the U.S. and Canada is one of the largest bilateral investment relationships in the world, totaling $898 billion in 2019, and that set a new record. Canada is the second largest source of foreign investment in the United States, with an investment stock valued at $580 billion as of 2019, ahead of many other much larger G7 economies. Every year, there's approximately 20 to $70 billion in new investments between our two countries. Canada is a strategic and important partner for the United States. Our cross-border ties will only help us build back better and speed up economic recovery. The Biden-Harris administration has already demonstrated its commitment to reinvigorate and prioritize our relationship by making Canada the first virtual meeting of the new administration on February 23rd. In addition, most cabinet members have held bilateral meetings with their Canadian counterparts, including our Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. As a part of the leaders meeting, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau launched the U.S.-Canada Partnership Roadmap to address priority areas of mutual concern, including COVID-19, inclusive economic recovery, climate change and clean energy, security and defense, diversity and inclusion, and partnering on global issues. Secretary of Commerce Raimondo has met with two Canadian counterparts, the Canadian Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, Francois Champagne, and Canadian Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade, Mary Ng, to advance roadmap priorities such as the following, supporting small and medium-sized enterprises, supporting minority and indigenous and women-owned businesses, leveraging the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, to ensure inclusive growth and recovery from the pandemic, strengthening North American supply chain security, and collaborating on critical minerals cooperation to target net zero industrial transformation batteries for zero emissions vehicles, and renewable energy storage. Our governments are working together to allocate resources to support women, minority, and indigenous-owned businesses, and small and medium-sized enterprises, as these are the backbone of our economy. For instance, we're connecting small business development centers and minority business development centers in the United States with their counterparts in Canada to ensure the sharing of networks and best practices. We also hosted a webinar with government experts from both sides of the border to educate SMEs on best practices for protecting their intellectual property. The USMCA resulted in significant updates to its predecessor, the North American Free Trade Agreement, improving market access for manufacturing and agricultural exports, as well as the inclusion of important new provisions in areas like digital trade, good regulatory practices, and small and medium-sized enterprises support. It also brought side agreements on labor and environmental protections into the core of the agreement, 
with meaningful commitments and state-of-the-art cooperation and enforcement mechanisms. The USMCA commits us to a robust and inclusive North American economy that serves as a model globally for competitiveness while prioritizing the interest of workers and underserved communities. On May 18th, the first USMCA Free Trade Commission meeting took place. At that meeting, the parties recognized that trade policy should foster broad-based and equitable growth, spur innovation, protect our shared environment, and have a positive impact on people from all walks of life. To accomplish this, the United States, Mexico, and Canada recommitted to fully implementing, enforcing, and fulfilling the agreement's terms and high standards throughout the life of the USMCA. We in North America need to continue to work together to adopt policies that promote competitiveness, create jobs, encourage investment, and ensure that trade advances equity and opportunity for all stakeholders. Fully implementing the USMCA is a great step toward this objective and is in the long-term best interest of our citizens. The U.S. Department of Commerce is a willing and committed partner to this, to this success. It's in the shared interest of the United States and Canada to revitalize and expand our historic alliance and steadfast friendship to overcome the daunting challenges that face us today and realize the full potential of the relationship into the future. Both the USMCA and the US-Canada Partnership Roadmap are excellent vehicles to ensure progress, and I'm pleased with the Department of Commerce's contribution to both. In closing, I wanna thank you again for the opportunity to take part in this event and to be part of this panel. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Canada Day and US Independence Day in the week ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Evan. Um, Ian, it was, a, it was an excellent overview of the um, uh, bilateral trade and commerce relationship between the United States and Canada and the work that the Department of Commerce is doing. I appreciate those remarks. At this time, um, I would like to uh, bring on Colin Robertson, uh, who will speak about um, the U.S.-Canadian trade and uh, investment um, relationship from a Canadian perspective. Colin, take it away. Thanks, Richard. Well, build back better is now a cliche. Uh, Trudeau used it on climate and then the pandemic. And of course, Biden has used it on climate and the pandemic. And then we saw at the G7, Boris Johnson using it with Build Back Better World as an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. So the first problem is definitional. What do we mean? I think the Biden administration wants to rebuild alliances, but the focus is on using executive and legislative authorities to improve the state of the domestic economy and society now has a higher priority today than any post-war, post-Cold War administration. But the US is not alone in wanting to build back better and introduce equity. Canada, of course, shares that given the rise of inequality and populism across most of the world's democratic nations. National champions in industrial policy are enjoying a renaissance on both sides of the Atlantic. In China, of course, they say business as usual because they've always directed how they want to have their national champions. In the Canada-US context, Build Back Better is part of the Canada-US roadmap as was referenced by Catherine and Arlen and uh, Zaif in their earlier remarks. Uh, and that's of course, as they put it out to renew the Canada-US partnership. It's uh, second after COVID of the six baskets of priorities agreed to as was pointed out by the prime minister and the president in February. So 126 days later, where are we? 
Well, there's lots of opportunity in this remarkably detailed roadmap. It really is impressive, as Catherine Baird pointed out. Based on a Canadian initiative, the Biden administration has made it their own. In the days after the summit, there was a flurry of ministerial meetings, environment, transport, defense, secretary, security, foreign affairs, as Ian pointed out, commerce is part of that, to come up with work plans. The key now is for Canadian leadership to move on the opportunity if we are to translate the shared vision into real progress. We really do have an opportunity with the roadmap to make some real gains in competitiveness that will serve the three countries. And I say the three countries, but essentially it is a Canada-US work plan because if Mexico doesn't want to play, and there's no guarantee that AMLO seems somewhat reluctant about this, if you look at the US-Mexico blueprint compared to the Canadian, it's a pretty thin gruel compared to what we have with the United States. So my sense is we've got to get on with it. When Mexico gets a new government, they can join us. But if we don't act and move now, we risk losing the advantage as Biden wants to demonstrate to the rest of the alliance that he means it when he says America's back and America is a good ally. So we really do have this opportunity. That said, of course, Biden is protectionist. His industrial policy is built around Buy America and jobs in America. But we can perhaps fit under the North American umbrella as the U.S. moves to enhance, uh, to inshore, reshore, and create an industrial policy to secure supply chains of which Buy America is central. Again, some of the stuff that Ian pointed out. We need to ensure that Buy America includes Canada for the reasons that Catherine pointed out, you know, the supply chain dynamics actually work. This is one of the longstanding Canadian arguments, but not always accepted on the US side, but we really do have to make this case now. For this to work, we need regional and bottom-up pressure from states, provinces, and cities who understand the importance of cross-border trade and investment. We need to bring business and labor, especially our buildings, trades, and industrial unions into the effort. Some like the steel workers, the champions of Buy America, are brothers or sisters to their Canadian counterparts. Joe Biden likes unions, so let's use the advantage that no other country possesses with these shared uh, unions. The thinking community is behind this with much good work done at places like the Wilson Center, the Bush Institute, and others, including the Council on Foreign Relations. It starts with getting our borders open. Public opinion gets the economic advantage but they want insurance through vaccine certification, uh, the health equivalent of the security insurance that we get with Trusted Traveler program. We managed the customs screen for decades and created a security perimeter after 9-11 that works well. Now we'll need to install a health screen using vaccine certification, testing and uh, tracing with enforcement to keep us healthy and safe. We want a reliable ally and the US wants a reliable ally. We will have to spend more on defense, especially in the Arctic, where Russia and China are more of a threat and the U.S. would like us to do more as they concentrate on the Indo-Pacific. In return, with the guarantee of critical minerals and energy, vital to the US, new U.S. industrial policy, we expect the United States to include us within the Buy America perimeter. Our mutual competitiveness will improve, and when Mexico is ready to join, the door is open. And I think I'll stop there, Richard, and let Eric pick it up from there. Yes, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Great pleasure to be with you today, and uh, thanks for, for having this important discussion. As has been pointed out by a number of panelists, the Canada-US relationship is uh, enormous, multifaceted, 
incorporated incorporating everything from trade, travel, movement of people, uh, national defense, and really over the the course of the last hundred years or so, habits of cooperation have really been developed in deep and very fundamental ways. So I think though, as we look at where we sit in 2021, uh, it's important to look back over the last couple of decades to see what happened. It has been by and large a fairly challenging period for Canada-US relations. Uh, the administration since the year 2000 uh, and their Canadian counterparts have had to deal with obviously major border measures after 9-11, foreign policy disagreements such as the war in Iraq, challenges over energy policy in the Keystone XL pipeline, COVID, and things of that nature. And you've seen significant strains that have arisen. Uh, the Trump era is something which still resonates very significantly in the bilateral relationship. And one of the great challenges that President Biden has is to find a way to rebuild trust with allies such as Canada. Canadians still well remember the, uh, the declarations of, of Canada uh, in its uh, steel and aluminum and Many took it as Canadians themselves as a threat to national security. They remember threats to destroy the economy. And they look nervously out at the 2024 presidential election to wonder whether there will be an administration that is, as many see it, hostile to Canada in that uh, period. But that said, with the Biden administration, you have seen an, an administration that is overly friendly, committed to building alliances, committed to building partnerships. So while that anxiety exists and real damage has been done during the Trump years to the relationship, it's important to look ahead to see what one can do knowing uh, with all of the complexities that there exists. So as has been pointed out, you've had the Canada-US roadmap that has emerged. A lot of interesting and very important things uh, in that roadmap. So just to take a couple of areas, so cooperation on cybersecurity, cooperation on NATO, a statement to, of wanting to revitalize the North American Leaders Summit in a trilateral context. Uh, obviously the two Michaels and further commitments were made also at the Leaders Climate Summit in April. And so there is a big agenda which countries have committed to working on. Now, importantly, in the Canadian political context, and every country has its own political context, what one could call the big three issues are not addressed in any of these frameworks. So the first of the big three issues is really energy market access. So one of the first acts of President Biden in office was to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. And Canada, as a country that is arguably really an energy superpower, saw that as something that was uh, a grave and disappointing action. Because after all, uh, even during the period between 2010 and 2015, when the Obama administration was assessing the Keystone XL pipeline, the US built the equivalent of 10 Keystone XL pipelines uh, within its own country. And so that coupled with the issues around line three, line uh, five in Michigan, line three in Minnesota uh, have created some friction because Canada has more energy 
that it knows what to do with, and it needs to be able to export that. The second of the fundamental issues has to do with Buy America and Buy American. Uh, as Colin pointed out, uh, President Biden is instinctively in favor of Buy America and Buy American policies. Uh, a key early act was to issue an executive order which uh, reformed the process of giving out waivers. And he has made clear that he's very skeptical on that process. And so working together with labor unions and others to convince the administration that the US and Canada really do have more in common with each other than, they, than, than otherwise. And that really they should work together on these sorts of uh, bilateral uh, procurement issues is really something that is fundamental and, and needs to be done. But the third issue also in this relationship is softwood lumber. And that has been a perennial issue. When you look back at the history of the shaping of the border between Maine and New Brunswick and uh, the whole areas of friction, this thing has been going on literally for centuries. And so uh, in the modern era, we are in the fifth major round of trade uh, disputes over softwood lumber and there isn't an evident pathway to a resolution on that. Now, when one looks ahead, there is uh, the all important issue that the US is seeking uh, cooperation from allies on, and that is addressing the rise of China. So there was a recent bill passed by the US Senate, still pending approval by the House, which looked at raising the US's game in terms of competitiveness in technology and other areas vis-a-vis -vis China. Buried within that legislation was a requirement that the US should develop a detailed roadmap for how it will work with Canada and with other allies, but it specifically called out in detailed Canada uh, in terms of how do, you, how do the two countries work together vis-a-vis -vis China. Now, Canada has a very challenging situation with China. The two Michaels are being held arbitrarily by the Chinese government. And, uh, and this is something which is of grave importance to Canada. Uh, but the ability to take punitive action also has other effects because China is a major buyer of Canadian commodities and things of that nature. And so thinking through how does one shift the relationship with China, how can the two countries optimally work together in their sweet spots and at the same time be very effective is something that's going to be very important. But as Colin points out, if Canada is uh, perhaps imperiling some export access uh, to China because China is known to be arbitrary in terms of its desire to close markets for those who do things that it doesn't like, is the US willing to, to work with Canada, for example, on an exemption from Buy American at the same time? And so there's a whole variety of issues and one cannot assume that one country or the other shares exactly the same interests or challenges in the relationship. And there needs to be a dialogue about what, to, what better together looks like for both on this particular front. Uh, in addition, and this speaks to the mandate of the Institute of the Americas, you have uh, Canada's cooperation in Latin America. So Canada has been a real leader on the whole uh, push for democratization in Venezuela. It has good things to offer uh, Vice, uh, Vice President Harris's initiative in the Northern Triangle. 
with respect to migration. And so seeing that as also a good pathway for cooperation is something that is crucially important. Let me end by identifying a number of opportunities. Uh, first opportunity, and this has been mentioned, is critical minerals. I would go slightly further and more specific to say, if the United States commits to a long-term purchase of Canadian critical minerals, obviously there'd have to be a rate of return associated with that. Might it not be in Canada's interest to, to work to, to build and open and commission mines in Canada that would be directly associated with offtake agreements to the US government? That means that Canada wouldn't be left having paid for a facility uh, to be developed and not have an end market for it, but I think there's a good amount of synergies in terms of offtakes and other things that could be done, whether that goes to the Defense Logistics Agency or others, we'll have to see. Another area that we may want to look at in this period of relative trade peace in, within North America is uh, the Sunset Clause in USMCA. Uh, there is a mechanism that has been put in place, albeit one that is hard to operationalize, but could see a sunsetting of USMCA over time, might it not be worth a discussion about do we want to simply eliminate that provision and to commit to making the USMCA framework a permanent ongoing and living framework. A third area of opportunity, and this was alluded to at the Leaders Climate Summit is mass timber. Uh, there's, there are great centers of excellence emerging in Oregon, and British Columbia and Toronto and other places of that nature. And one thing we know about Canada is there's a lot of trees. And so how can one work more readily together on standards, adoption and exports of mass timber? Certainly a, 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 an additional area to focus on is Canada and the US should work together on software integrity issues. After the colonial pipeline ransomware attack, there was a major uh, executive order that was issued by the Biden administration and part of that process will look at the integrity of supply chains for making software. This is something that Canada will want to be involved with and should want to be involved with, uh, both because a lot of this software will end up being used by corporate Canada and also because there are undoubtedly uh, additional opportunities. Uh, a last piece, and I think this goes to the realm of needing to think creatively is um, I've been reading a little bit lately about the Alaska Native Corporations. Uh, these are corporations that were set up 50 years ago out of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Some of these community organizations have grown to be billion dollar plus companies. Uh, exploring how perhaps uh, projects or groups in the Yukon and other parts of the Canadian North could work more closely with their counterparts in Alaska would be a worthwhile venture. Uh, there is a great burgeoning uh, Aboriginal business community or, or, or Native American business community in uh, within North America, but looking at using uh, capital that exists uh, in some of these groups in North America, in, in particularly in, in Alaska to fund projects in the Arctic would be something that's crucially important. We have ignored the Arctic for far too long. And so thinking creatively about holders of capital and those that need infrastructure and other projects uh, to be operationalized is something 
that should definitely be a priority. And if those who live in the region can be owners and investors in these projects, that's all to the good. So great deal of opportunities, despite having had uh, ha had some challenges in recent years. But I think the future of the Canada-US relationship is very bright and there is just so much that we can do together. Eric, thank you so much for that perspective. I think you shared some, um, some of the interesting challenges and opportunities we have in the bilateral relationship, both in terms of opportunity, but as well as some of the conflicts. So thank you for that perspective. Uh, we now turn to um, Kirsten Stewart, um, who will share some of her perspectives from where she sits in Los Angeles um, in the center of the creative economy. So um, Kirsten, take it away. Thank you, Richard, uh, and hi, yes, I'm Kirsten Stewart. I've been spending the last three years working with the World Economic Forum, uh, and I'm happy to give a bit of a global perspective on what we've been seeing in terms of this opportunity to build back better. I think you know the pandemic has obviously uh, uncovered uh, and magnified in many ways a lot of the disparities that we've been seeing globally, whether that's economic or whether that's social. And you know, with the benefits of what the forum has seen over the past years of the working together of the both public and private uh, uh, organizations and enterprises to come up with good global solutions that are sustainable through a challenging time like this, I think is, is kind of more important than ever. Uh, this idea of building back better through the pandemic um, and trying to find the ways that we can actually you know, help communities out of what have been long-term uh, um, issues that, again, were you know, incredibly, as was pointed out off of the top with um, the, the conversation, when you see the, the difference between economic groups racialized groups, um, different groups, uh, uh, both geographically and uh, age groups have been impacted you know, quite uh, severely by the pandemic. There is an opportunity here to re reassess the kinds of systems that have perhaps for many generations uh, been problematic in supporting uh, a lot of these uh, different groups. So the building back better, I think for the forum has been an opportunity to look at how can we through public and private partnership find a better way out of this incredibly challenging situation, uh, both economic and social and where those challenges have actually merged. I specifically, as Richard mentioned off the top, work with the media sector at the World Economic Forum. And so that means working with different media platforms, media organizations, groups, who have a very global perspective on the impact of content, the, uh, the distribution of information, access to the microphone uh, on a global basis, uh, platforms, publishers, content creators, all form part of the group that I work with at the World Economic Forum. And they come from everywhere from advertising to social media, uh, traditional media like newspapers, television uh, um, outlets, as well as content creators um, in music and sport um, and all forms of entertainment and news uh, as well. So it's an interesting group of people who, again, have this opportunity to think together about what are the ways in which we can collectively uh, work to uh, make the make the world a better place. Uh, essentially, that that is what the focus of the forum has been. And together with our partners, 
we look at the ways that you know, the impact of the pandemic particularly has had on a number of the groups that are either part of the audience or part of the creator economy that take part uh, in, in the media sector um, have, 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 have been affected uh, through this time and ways that we can uh, look through uh, technology or through other means to see that we can improve on these, these states. It was an it was an interesting time uh, through the pandemic. I think you know for a lot of us who were living here in North America, uh, lockdown meant uh, a return to the couch uh, and a and a and, and a need for entertainment in a way that had not been probably experienced in some time. Uh, one where we were very much uh, uh, reliant on a form of entertainment that would be. Um, Keeping us uh, engaged through a through a time that was you know, incredibly distracting. Uh, I think we've we've all become Zoom experts. Um, we've all known uh, the proliferation of the streaming uh, uh, platforms that have been launched through this time. Never before has there been more of a demand for content, and yet never before had there been so much challenge in creating. Uh, because of the pandemic and various lockdowns that had happened throughout North America, in Hollywood, in Toronto, and some of the major production centers, uh, so had, so had never had there been such a a, a disparity of de demand and such a, uh, a crisis when it came to the creation and supply of content. Uh, and when we think about that in terms of entertainment content and the kinds of ways that we need to just keep people engaged and, and, and entertained in their home through a lockdown period. You can also imagine how problematic and how important it was when it came to information that was uh, on a reliant basis through a pandemic, information that you needed to know, uh, vital information, um, information that would, uh, would, would be important, whether it was figuring out what you were going to do with your vaccination schedule or how to, how to, how to educate your child. Uh, you know, there was a number of, of demands on information and, and a huge proliferation of disinformation that also um, proliferated through this time. So that was also a focus of our group and how to make sure that we created safe digital spaces at a time when there was so much content uh, flooding onto platforms globally. Um, that was incredibly important to, to make sure that information was not disinformation and that it was safe information. In fact, the forum just announced uh, today a, an important coalition in the child safety uh, sector in recognition of the fact that as, as creators, we, we have an important uh, responsibility to make sure that we create safe spaces uh, for, for all members of society. And this one is particularly focusing on children. And so we've just announced a, a coalition this morning uh, with response to uh, the challenges in, in child safety uh, online. Um, in addition to the, 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 the impact that we see, saw through the pandemic and, and this kind of disparity between the demand for content and yet the challenge in actually creating a supply of content, it really did point out how important a supply chain uh, content is and how media plays a part in that and the media sector, whether it's from the value chain or the supply chain from content creator to consumption, all along that supply chain, there are various vulnerabilities, um, but there's also various opportunities. 
And I think the innovations that were forced uh, through the this time of lockdown, through this time of of needing uh, to rise up to the to the demand and the call for a good, verifiable, and and entertaining content through through the pandemic, has forced a huge acceleration in innovation in creation uh, and it's just like everyone seems to have bought a ring light and uh, become an expert content creator at home uh, this is actually a good thing in many ways because it's now created this new opportunity where we have content creators that are not necessarily funneled through large systems but actually are a growing industry um, and can it can be found uh, in in every corner uh, that's also create, created demand on our systems in order to create opportunities for share of voice and share of platform. Uh, so that's also an, um, another thing that I think we'll start to see in the next coming months is as as uh, regulators start getting back to the table and looking at things like Section 230 and in other areas where uh, the, the whole regulation of who gets access to the pipeline, I think will be an important thing to look at um, as we start coming out of this pandemic. We've also seen through the work that I've been doing at the forum, uh, how platforms, how content creators, how major uh, uh, multinational uh, companies and corporations have stepped up in a time when it was necessary, not just in the forms of creating content, but creating content that matters and creating content that actually responded to some of the social inequities that were magnified through the pandemic, whether it was Black Lives Matter or some of the other uh, social uh, uh, campaigns that we saw that were important to audiences, important to creators, important to society in general, uh, whether it was sports uh, entities, whether it was uh, publishers, platforms, there was a call to action to really step up and understand the role that storytellers play in making sure that stories are told from various perspectives that diversity was represented, that there was an opportunity to actually share that microphone in the promise that social media had initially uh, uh, done when it when it had uh, first launched. Uh, there was, I think, an expectation that uh, information and voice would be democratized through the launch of social media. And I think we really saw that put to the test through the pandemic. Uh, so as we look to build back better, I think it's going to be interesting to see how we uh, look at the challenges that we've just undergone in the last few months, take a look at the opportunities that were created through different technologies and different uh, processes that were put into place through the pandemic as we learned to work our way in ways that we never have before. Uh, and I look forward to the conversation around what we can do to work better as we move forward out of this pandemic. Thanks, Richard. I'm going to uh, start this conversation with a couple of questions for our uh, panelists. Uh, Eric spoke about the softwood lumber issue. Uh, under the Trump administration, uh, the um, tariffs for Canadian softwood lumber were increased by over 20 percent. Um, and in light of the COVID um, supply chain issues that we are having globally, but particularly in North America, um, I would like to get perspective from Eric, maybe, and, and also from um, from uh, Ian to, to talk further about this issue. Uh, obviously, increased tariff hurt U.S. consumers. Um, lumber prices here in Southern California are going through the roof and are impacting builders, impacting um, homeowners that are looking to remodel. In light of the fact we have a new administration, is there any sort of leeway on this issue of softwood lumber? Because this is becoming a an issue that many people here in Southern California are talking about. 
Yes, thanks, Richard, for the question. So fundamentally, the United States produces about 70% of the softwood lumber that it consumes. So every year, on average, it needs to import about 30% of its needs. Canada is the logical uh, location from which to source that lumber because you can put it on a truck and drive it there, put it on a train uh, and, uh, and roll it there. But you have seen uh, a situation where since the early 1980s, first with the Coalition for Fair Lumber Imports, now the U.S. Lumber Coalition, you have seen uh, persistent U.S. actions on softwood lumber uh, with respect to anti-dumping and countervail. This fundamentally turns on the issue of stumpage uh, and also a, a secondary issue around uh, British Columbia's log export restrictions. 92% uh, of the forest land in Canada is publicly owned, which means that the government essentially charges a fee to those who want to log that land, whereas a big chunk of US forests, particularly in the Southeast, are privately owned. So it's a very, very different dynamic. And so the coalition has for some time gotten together to push for US trade action against Canadian lumber. This has had the effect of driving up prices over the long term. And uh, what you see in this uh, shock that has, has unfolded over the last couple of months is that combination of long-term tariff pressure on US lumber prices coupled with shortages from softwood have meant that uh, that uh, two by four prices have peaked at $1,640 per thousand board foot. A year before it was $350 per thousand board foot. So a huge impact. And so people are naturally saying, what can we do to help to, to relieve uh, this grave pressure? And what can be done is for the two countries to work together on negotiating a long-term sustainable softwood lumber agreement. But that involves also convincing the 20-odd companies in the coalition to be willing to, in essence, consider removing their case that would be an important step to allowing this type of negotiation to go forward. But for now, uh, unfortunately, uh, you're going to end up paying an awful lot of money if you want to put a deck on your house. Colin, do you have a perspective on the softwood lumber issue? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Look. This is something that goes back, as, as I think Eric said earlier, generations and centuries. When I was at the embassy in Washington and we were in the last renegotiation of the softwood lumber agreements that we negotiated in the 80s, when we were leading up to the Canada-US free trade agreement, then led to the NAFTA, uh, my then boss, Frank McKenna, who was our ambassador, turned to me and said, when did this start? So I phoned the Librarian of Congress, who had become a friend, and said, when was the first Canada, US, the Americans put it, timber dispute. He waited a couple of days, got back to me and said, this goes back to the second George Washington administration. And then the battle was between Massachusetts and New Brunswick. At that point, Massachusetts included Maine. Maine didn't become a state till 1821. And it had to do with the timber or lumber from, uh, from New Brunswick going down to Boston and competing with it because, of course, everybody wanted the... The, the timber for ships masts and building ships, wood building ships at that time. So I became convinced after living through these, the, the 80s and the 90s and the knots and the negotiations that this is 
uh, another, this is a chronic condition. The most we can hope for is managed trade. And that's essentially what we've got now is managed trade. So we export to the US and Canadians are paying a lot higher price for their decks too, Eric, because I went looking for some to do some addition to our cottage recently. But so the, the North American consumer is the, the victim and the, the, the producers, particularly in Canada, are the winners. And the, the losers, as I say, are particularly the consumers in Canada and in the United States. But we have managed trade. We've done the same thing now to the auto trade. I think this is something you just have to live with. It goes to litigation and it goes to the World Trade Organization and we'll use the dispute settlement in the, the new NAFTA. But I think basically we're going to have to manage for, for managed trade as long as we are seen to be and we are a more competitive than our American counterparts. And the real problem here is not the Northwest, as I used to think it was back in the days. It really is down in the Southeast where you've got small owners of, of timber lots, which is essentially their pensions. I remember Haley Barber, the governor of Mississippi, being down to see him and he said, let me explain it to you. And he did. He, he was somebody who really understood how Washington works. So I think a chronic condition that we'll end up with managed trade. That's just the way it is. Thank you. Um, I want to turn to the issue of cybersecurity. Um, we all recently saw the impacts of the colonial pipeline a ransomware attack um, and the impact that had on the Northeast of the United States as well as Southeast. Um, what if that would have happened on one of the cross-border pipelines between the US and Canada? I wanted to see if you could touch on the issue of cyber, um, cybersecurity, ransomware and impacts on the US-Canada trade relationship and what um, our respective governments are doing to work with industry to address some of these emerging issues which we're all facing. I can take that because uh, I was very involved in setting up the private sector coordination infrastructure in Canada. So uh, there are cyber attacks all all the time. As the CEO of the Southern Company uh, put it after the Colonial Pipeline, he said, "If the Colonial Pipeline attack was a wake up call, you really must have been asleep." Uh, there are these attacks are constantly uh, occurring uh, and. Uh, and uh, so it's a matter of hardening the infrastructure, looking at where, uh, where it is that uh, your software is made. When you dig into the solar winds attack, which was the attack which became public at the end of last year, solar winds was a major supplier of Microsoft. And this, these tools were used by, uh, by uh, corporate North America, the governments and so on. SolarWinds, their major supplier of software, was actually developing software in Belarus, you know, which is essentially a Russian colony. And so you wonder why there is where why there are cybersecurity issues. Start with the very basics of where are you developing this stuff? What are the standards you're looking at? How is it that you're moving the process forward? The Colonial Pipeline uh, Group apparently did not have proper air gapping in their system between their industrial control system and their email system. So there's a lot that can be done in terms of cyber hygiene as we look ahead to the future. But of course, the one issue that, I, that also is looming in cybersecurity is the quantum computing revolution, which is something that you're starting to see emerge in California and other places. Quantum computing will likely within a decade have the power to break all public key encryption systems 
currently in use. So RSA and the other encryption systems. So the National Institutes for Standards and Technology, part of the Commerce Department and others are developing what are called post-quantum encryption protocols. So this battle is constant. Uh, bad actors, criminals, nation states and others are constantly attacking. And it's important to harden current systems in North America and ensure that we have the best possible hygiene uh, in terms of the pipelines that interconnect us, the highways that interconnect us, and all the rest. I'll jump in uh, very briefly just to confirm that you know this is a this is a topic that is of great interest to both governments and their uh, aspects of it that are within the province of the Department of Commerce that are done by uh, handled by our organization, this as Eric mentioned, and there are also elements that are handled by the Department of Homeland Security. And one of the things that we're looking at um, in the context of the roadmap is having the issue of cybersecurity. A, a space where we can have a dialogue about things that we can do better. We also, as Department of Commerce, have a good relationship with ISET, our Canadian counterpart, that handles uh, um, uh, techno technological issues like quantum computing and AI. And so uh, uh, the relationship that we have between our organizations presents a potential venue for having conversations about what we can do as a, as a practical matter uh, to, to, to actually act upon the concern for the safety that we have on this sort of critical technological infrastructure. And it's certainly gonna be an issue that we have to keep after for some time, but the good news is that we have experts uh, that are in contact with one another and the potential to hopefully uh, advance this work as the as this is a risk that will persist. Um, Colin, any, any thoughts? Uh, Christine, any thoughts uh, regarding the issue of cyber? There's a wonderful book out, I think that Kel Penroth, this is how the world ends. I recommend to anybody who's interested in the cyber thing to, to read this book. She goes through and basically outlines the kind of things that both Ian and Eric have talked about. We're going to turn to some of the uh, questions from the, uh, from the audience. We've got several. Um, the first question um, um, is related to um, why the Buy American provisions are harmful to bilateral trade um, and really counter the spirit of shared North American pr uh, prosperity. And, um, and why they need to exist in the North American context, either in NAFTA 1.0 or 2.0. So uh, we could, maybe Ian, you wanna talk about Buy America? Um, Eric, maybe you have some perspectives on that. Sure, I can, I can start a bit on this. And I think probably the first piece that I would mention is that uh, nothing in the executive order on Buy American is, it overrides current law. Nothing is, is inconsistent with, existing U.S. rights and obligations under our international agreements, such as the WTO Agreement on Government Procurement. So I think that's part of, I think that's the first piece I would mention. The second thing that, that I would mention is that really the objective of the executive order is to look at uh, how the mechanisms that we have to ensure compliance with the laws as they are currently written and ensure that there isn't uh, inappropriate exploitation of, of loopholes. So I think that the, the conversation is, is somewhat at a, at a more technical level, but does not override our overall international obligations. And certainly where Canadian companies are working on transactions that are covered by the WTO GPA, uh, though their access would not be in any way uh, affected. So Ian's right that that it, that it is entirely consistent with U.S. law. The uh, the question, I guess, really is: Is this the way that we want to be organizing ourselves in the context of a North American market? 
And so U.S. companies have roughly 9% of Canadian federal government procurement and Canadian companies have less than, much less than 1% of U.S. federal government procurement. And the sense is, is that if you are able to have suppliers from both countries, you can get better products and better services. But if we, uh, as we look at it, there's also the question of what more can we be doing together to use procurement as a lever to advance our goals in all of the areas of uh, 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 that are under review by supply chains, to advance our goals in terms of competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis China. And so I think Canada should be thought of as something differently because the US-Canada relationship is very different than the US-Belgium relationship or the US-Vietnam relationship. It's something that is unique and different and that by American provisions are arguably more destructive in the context of the Canada-US relationship, given the depth and breadth of context, than it is in the context of relations with other countries. So that would be what I would submit. Let's turn to the creative economy. We had a question about the um, level of um, bilateral collaboration between Canada and the United States um, and USMCA. Um, Christine, sitting um, where you are in Los Angeles, um, in the midst of Hollywood and the um, and the entertainment industry, what um, what do you see in terms of new potential collaborations that can can occur um, under USMCA um, um, or in terms of the overall bilateral relationship to expand um, the service economy between the U.S. and Canada um, in entertainment um, and in media? I know Toronto has become a, a hotbed of film recently. A lot of American film companies are moving there to do production. Um, love to get your perspectives on this. Sure. Um, not speaking specifically to the um, the bilateral agreement, but in general around you know the opportunities that we're finding uh, in the sector you know between Canada and the U.S. There obviously has been a very long term relationship. Canadian companies have have, uh, have come down to the states um, for their creative um, projects. Vice versa, American companies go to Canada for shooting. I think you know there's been quite a shift in recent times around the purpose behind. Uh, or the motivation behind a lot of that movement, um, which in the past was, I think, predominantly um, motivated by uh, various tax and, and uh, exchange rate um, benefits. Uh, but now I think there's a deep understanding of the talent base that's located in, in both areas and how across North America, uh, these talent pools can work uh, collaboratively in order to create some amazing content. So I think, you know, what was initially, I think, built on the basis of incentives, I think has now grown to a state of one where it's actually seen as a, a benefit to be working together simply because of the, the, the opportunities that are found at the, the high, high level of, of, of talent base. We've had conversations uh, lately with, uh, for example, I was uh, interviewing um, Ted Sarandos, the uh, uh, co-CEO of Netflix, whose first ever uh, external uh, location outside of the US 
uh, for Netflix was in Canada. It was the first place it launched. And, you know, that's in, I think, um, reference to a lot of the, the, the kind of cultural um, similarities between Canada and the U.S. in terms of audience and, and appeal. But it's, I think also, and as he pointed out, it's a huge benefit to actually uh, tapping into the talent base that's in Canada and that's developed over the time of these incentives. You know, the, the repeated uh, uh, productions that have been taking place over the years in Vancouver, uh, Toronto, Montreal, across the country have really established an amazing talent base that is recognized internationally. And so uh, those folks come into Canada to do their productions uh, and and really capitalize and, and take advantage of a very diverse workforce. I think this is a real golden age for the creative economy. When you look at the at the performance of the uh, the comedy Schitt's Creek, that is an extraordinary example of Canadian talent and production that has done very well in the the U.S. and the global economy. And it's a, a matter of, of saying, how do we unlock these creators that you have in Canada to get them access to the global economy? Because you go on any of the platforms, Hulu, Netflix, uh, Amazon, whatever, you can watch shows from around the world. And so it's a question of how do you get that channel, that Canadian aesthetic f uh, for a global audience. And of course, there's also debates about copyright, uh, what the European copyright uh, law looked like. I did some work for the Music Publishers Association and the whole question of the value gap and who gets paid what for, uh, for certain content. But I think in the main, fundamentally, if you're uh, if you're Canada, there is a great opportunity for both getting, getting Canadian voices and Canadian talent out there in the world. And just like uh, Canada is a close and good market for Netflix to come to, the U.S. is also a close and good market for creative, Canadian creators to engage with. Richard, I'm going to say I'm, I think it, it underlines the one of the great values of industrial policy because one of the early examples in Canada of an industrial policy were the content rules, particularly as it applied to our, our music industry. And it, as a result, we punch way beyond our weight because I think that the content rules in Canada that guaranteed a certain amount of, air, of, of space on our radio television was, was used by, had to be used by Canadian content, uh, allowed that then to be magnified out. And I certainly found when I was posted in Los Angeles, and I'm sure Zave and Arlen would agree that that, that, that the talent uh, scouts were, were looking to Canada because we had all this talent. So they used to come and watch our journals and we used to have parties at the residence so people could come and watch what's going on. Now, of course, you just can go online and watch all this. But I, I do think that it, it underlines a, a kind of early industrial policy that really worked for Canada. We have a question related to the to Canadian content, which, which many of you have just touched upon. Um, and um, there is a bill in Canada, Bill C-10, um, that, um, that works to emphasize um, the uh, protection of Canadian content. Uh, the question from Amar Simpson um, had to do with the, the level of U.S. control by major multinationals, you know, Netflix, Amazon, um, Apple, et cetera, um, and um, the opportunity for Canada to do it right. Um, I wanted to see maybe um, you could comment on the issue of Canadian content um, as we evolve um, in this age of internet and um, and what had become sort of a homogenization 
of, um, of American culture uh, in media? I can kick off the top of that. So as formerly the head of the CBC, um, obviously, and, and thanks for the shout out to Schitt's Creek there, because that was one of uh, the great uh, successes of the team. And before that, obviously, um, shows like Dragon's Den and Little Mosque on the Prairie, where my husband Zabe was actually um, uh, lead on, uh, have, have shown you know the benefits of Canadian content. I think what we have to be very aware of now, and without specifics to you know the the, the bill that's in place, because I haven't read the bill um, currently, um, but in a global context, when you think about Canadian content and the benefits of Canadian talent. I think sometimes we get caught up in definitions and, you know, as, as Colin rightly pointed out, those early policies were very much um, responsible for laying the groundwork of, of nurturing a lot of great Canadian talent. But I think in today's world where you look at a global marketplace where uh, borders uh, really don't hold back um, distribution and they don't hold back broadcasting uh, and they don't hold back audiences, we are really living in a global marketplace now. And to define Canadian content narrowly, I think, actually is a bit of a challenge when it comes to uh, actually motivating a lot of content creators to take advantage of, as Eric is pointing out, a global marketplace is now available to it. Um, so I think we do have to revisit uh, how we view Canadian content in a policy way in a new framework when a global marketplace no longer kind of requires it to be as specific as it had in the past. When you think of great uh, Canadian talent now and how they've made their mark globally, they did not necessarily come up through the Canadian content system uh, to do that. Um, and I'm thinking of Justin Bieber, Lily Singh, you know, these are a number of, of big Canadian talents that are global um, superstars who have made their mark using US platforms or global platforms. So it is a, there. you can't live, you know, we live in a world where Canadian talent has benefited over the years from a structure that supported and nurtured Canadian talent through a Canadian content requirement. But now that we're in a global marketplace, the global framework, I think we have to revisit what Canadian content looks like. Because when I'm sitting and watching Netflix and I watch Ginny and Georgia, which is ostensibly an American show, and yet I see the director of Sud Sutherland, who is a Canadian, I see the actors, Jim Robertson and a number of others um, reflected on screen who are all Canadian, that is actually you know, perpetuating and nurturing you know, the, the great Canadian talent on a global basis and giving them a global platform uh, for exposure and for growth. So I think you know, we have to be mindful of the fact that we're in a global marketplace now and look at those rules probably with a different prism. We've had several questions about USMCA and the broader North American relationship. Um, one, um, one question from Stephen Armstrong was, um, you know, he, he notes that we're about to celebrate the first anniversary of the USMCA. Um, and he, he asks, how best can we keep the agreement top of mind in the coming years with businesses, especially to encourage more trade engagement with small business, women-owned businesses and other communities who have historically not exported as much as the others? Um, in the, in the North American context. I don't know if anybody wants to take that question on. Sure, Richard, I can, I can start with some of that and just mention that it, the USMCA has a particular emphasis on, emphasis on small and medium-sized enterprises, actually having a chapter on it and a committee that's responsible for looking after uh, 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 
this particular constituency and giving them the opportunity to and to engage in the agreement and take advantage of its of its benefits. One of the one of the obligations that the parties have under the uh, SME chapter is to provide an information resource, uh, and so what we so that small and medium sized enterprises have ready access to information to be able to un- get, get a better understanding of the agreement and really take advantage of it. What we've done as a Department of Commerce is we've created a, a, a specific website um, to support uh, as part of the Department of Commerce website, which is a which is a library of resources and contacts. Uh, it fulfills the, the obligation under the SME chapter, but it's also a really great go to resource. It has links to our counterparts in the Canadian government. So uh, they have the opportunity to understand those requirements uh, in, in, in both Canada and Mexico. And it gets a fair and it gets a fair amount of traffic. So that's one way that we do it is providing information in one place for SMEs to access. But the other thing that we're doing is as, as part of the Biden Harris administration's overall approach is we're taking we're we're giving specific attention to how we do outreach to women-owned businesses, to to small and medium-sized enterprises, to businesses that are from uh traditionally underserved communities. Uh, and so while we have already in statute an obligation to make sure that we as the International Trade Administration provide service to small and medium sized enterprises, we actually have a metric for the percentage of clients that should represent small and medium sized enterprises. What we are looking at is working through working through chambers of commerce and other emphasis organizations to make sure that there's better awareness of the services and support that we can provide as the Department of Commerce to those industries that may have an interest in exporting but haven't quite made that leap yet. So we're working through the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Export Assistance Centers that I mentioned during my presentation to make sure that there's better awareness, to give them the opportunity to ask questions, and to link them via our UZX to our colleagues overseas and the and the commercial service offices so that where there are market opportunities overseas that we're creating that bridge for them so that they can accomplish deals. So that's some of the work that we're doing in, in Department of Commerce. Thank you. Um, any of our other panels have a perspective on this issue of greater access under USMCA for smaller businesses and uh... so so fundamentally um, the utilization of trade agreements is first and foremost a a national priority. And so Ian's gone through the many things that the US is doing in Canada. There's been a big outreach effort from the Trade Commissioner Service on better utilizing the agreement. I think one of the things that the North American integration framework, if you want to call it that, has always struggled with is an ability to think through common projects beyond simply having the trade agreement. And so it's obviously down to companies to use the agreement, governments to help companies to use this agreement. But the question is, how do we, as as three countries as part of this agreement, how are we able to leverage this platform or to extend this platform uh, to do other types of things? For example, in competition with China or trade with, uh, with certain goods that may be uh, 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 better for the environment or things of that nature. And so I think uh, before NAFTA was negotiated, it was put on autopilot. You had the technical committees that the people who were involved with it paid attention to. But I think it behooves us to think through 
what is it that we can use this platform for going forward that will help keep it top of mind, both in terms of relevance, but also in terms of an ability to make a meaningful difference in the lives of North Americans? I want to turn to First Nations. We have a couple of questions from David um, um, Adwick um, from the San Diego World Affairs Council. Um, he asks about um, what um, Canada First Nation corporations are doing in terms of investment on a cross-border basis in the United States, as well as what um, channels and organizations um, the First Nation groups interact with um, through Ottawa and the, and the Canadian government. If you want, I'll go since I mentioned Alaska. So uh, certainly um, the whole area of Aboriginal business has become a very dynamic and exciting space over the last couple of decades. And you start to see some very significant and interesting deals. So in Nunavut, for example, there is a, an association called the KIA, which helps to guide uh, mining and infrastructure and other investments in that part of Canada. Uh, in Nova Scotia, you've recently seen a group of six First Nations groups come together to buy Clearwater Fine Foods, which is uh, the largest exporter of lobsters in the world. They did a billion dollars worth of lobster exports to China last year, for example. Uh, and and uh, they have production in Argentina and other uh, parts of the world. So you're starting to see uh, First Nations groups being involved in bigger projects and participating in the global economy. And of course, there is, um, even within the, the debates over pipelines, so whether it's Trans Mountain or, uh, or what have you, you start seeing uh, debates on what are the benefit agreements, what's the ownership stake. A group of First Nations have just approached the federal government in Canada on buying outright uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was owned by Kinder Morgan out of Houston, purchased by the Canadian federal government to give confidence in uh, in uh, in its uh, fate and survival. And now you've seen First Nations come and say, we'd like to buy that out and operate it. And so I think... Uh, the area of capital accumulation and First Nations business is something that is hugely important. And as the First Nations economies grow and develop, invariably they will spread across borders. And so this holds out the actual hope to do much more for actual participation of First Nations groups within an integrated North American economy than other things necessarily you would see from the government. And it's happening from the ground up based on investment opportunities uh, along the same lines that you or I or anyone else would look at them. Thank you. Um, I want to see if we could, uh, China has been raised, um, a few of you and, and Catherine spoke about the, um, the need for greater multilateral coordination. Um, here in San Diego, we've got uh, Qualcomm, which is a, uh, a leader in 5G, now working on 6G. Um, Huawei has been a contentious issue, both in Canada and the United States. I want to see maybe you could talk about the, um, the race towards um, the Internet of Things, um, 5G, 6G, and the role that U.S.-Canada bilateral relationship will play in, um, in this new emerging economy. I think what I think that you know we we've looked at the issue of five G as as and and sort of the the future trajectory of our information technology and are very mindful of the 
of sort of the role that it's going to play in our lives, the, the, the ever-increasing importance, but also the, the exponential growth and information that will be coursing through these systems. And so one of the things that we're very, we're, we're very mindful of is that you know, security and integrity of those systems is important. And as, the, as, as we're all in a stage where the infrastructure for 5G and even its successor generations is being built out, the decisions that we make now about that infrastructure and the security of that infrastructure are going to are going to have consequences, positive or negative, over quite a period of time. And so we've been working very closely with uh, uh, on the issue of sort of ensuring that there are trusted vendors that are brought to the network. And I think one of the one, one of the one of the benefits of the strength of the U.S. Canada relationship is really a, a, a shared sense of values and a high sense of integrity. And so being able to being able to uh, mobilize ourselves around an understanding of the importance that, of the security of this infrastructure and its appropriate use is something that I think creates a real opportunity for us, not just as we build our respective domestic networks, but also as we are in the position to uh, hopefully uh, make useful suggestions to others around the world that are looking to similarly build out their infrastructure and ensuring that what they build is something that has sort of the best interests of their societies and their businesses at its core. I think fundamentally, uh, the infrastructure uh, is bifurcating or uh, breaking into multiple different pieces. So uh, the the type of telecom network, uh, internet structure and so on that you see in China is very different than what you see in the United States. And so we're going to look at equipment that does different things, that has different standards. And so multi variable uh, equipment, particularly when it comes to issues like cybersecurity and who builds it and who has trust and so on, is going to be something that is crucially important. The key is you have to keep moving forward in a very strong direction. Now, you mentioned Qualcomm. Qualcomm is uh, sees Canada or would see Canada as an important market. And one thing that is slightly wonky that's really important is that Canada basically matches its uh, spectrum structure for telecom equipment based on the U.S. system. So when you have 700 megahertz, uh, uh, you have a 700 megahertz block in Canada, it is configured technically in the same way as it is in the United States. So this is something uh, which which is very important for the National Institutes of uh, the National Telecom and Information Agency, the FCC, and so on. So it means that Qualcomm can sell that chip in a phone that will automatically and seamlessly work in a Canadian context. And so thinking through about standards, what we want in terms of security, this is crucially important. And uh, I think Christine, when she's done with WEF Media, might want to transition to look over at uh, technological futures and how do we actually ensure interoperability among all these systems as people move around the world. We have a, a question and a comment from Peter Meissen, uh, who's here in San Diego. He says, Canada is the largest uh, trading partner for the United States, especially in, in the context of cross-border high-voltage le- um, electrical connections, where we buy Canada's excess hydropower. A great clean energy win-win. Uh, Canada is also committed to climate change. But he also points out that um, Canada also relies on its uh, tar sands from Alberta 
um, which is obviously um, a, uh, an industry that has um, challenges in terms of CO2 emissions. Um, he asked, how can we advocate this fuel extraction as well as CO2 reduction as well? Um, how do we reconcile that in the context of humanity, Canada's health, and, um, and the current uh, focus on climate change? I don't know if any of the Canadians want to take that on. We need energy. When you look at the when you look at the electric vehicle market in the United States or in North America, uh, you're in the low single digits in terms of adoption of electric vehicles. That is something that will change over time, but there has to be a transition process. Uh, in addition, when you look at the oil sands, uh, the oil sands it has an enormous store of of oil in it that is available to the United States. If the United States does not buy oil from Canada, it will buy oil from Venezuela and will buy oil from other regimes that are less friendly to the United States and its interests. It's important to dig into the science of what's gone on in the oil sands, the massive reduction in the quantity of, of water that it takes to make a barrel of oil and the energy intensity that you look at. But we are at the beginning of what is a long transition in terms of fossil fuels. And lest we also forget that on the other side of this, uh, you will need electric vehicles, which use an awful lot of rare earth elements, cobalt, uh, nickel, uh, graphite, and things of that nature. So it's not like we will go from one system where we're only using fossil fuels to another system where we're not using anything. It's just that the, the energy mix will shift. And ironically, when it comes to hydroelectric power, one of the great fights that the Canadian government has fought for years, and luckily has finally been ultimately successful, is to have hydropower classified as a renewable energy source all over the United States, because there were a variety of states which did not see hydropower as something that was renewable. So I think the first thing when we look at our energy system is to be honest about where we are, honest about the time trajectory of where it is that we need to go. And the oil sands is a big part of the mix. And it's something where the United States needs energy. I mean, the irony of the Biden administration, uh, which said that uh, we would like to import critical minerals from abroad. So is the choice that you would rather mine cobalt in the Congo, or would you rather mine cobalt in the United States? and do it to US standards environmentally and all the rest of it. So there, there are choices that need to be made, but it's not a choice of the cleaner, greener future not involving energy, any energy intensity versus what we have now. We have to say that there are trade-offs in this transition which need to be made and that lots of energy sources, including oil sands, will have a big role to play uh, over the short, medium, and even longer term as this transition plays out. I want to ask about the um, the issue of critical minerals. Um, it's been brought up. Eric, you've brought it up. Um, Ian brought it up. Um, it was also brought up by Catherine. This is a um, issue of enor enormous importance for um, both Canada and the United States. Obviously, the future um, clean energy economy, um, solar and um, and wind, depend greatly on some of these um, critical um, strategic minerals. Um, and there are, as you, as you mentioned just earlier, um, Eric, trade-offs. Um, and, um, and you know, I know that, for example, Canada, there's a couple of Canadian companies now looking at um, deep sea mining 
um, which has some opposition from environmental groups because of the impacts um, on the seafloor. Um, so let's see if we can maybe, if you could touch on this issue, because obviously um, there are limited locales for these critical um, strategic minerals. Um, obviously the U.S. is a, um, is a source. Canada has some of these strategic minerals, but oftentimes it requires Canadian and U.S. companies to go abroad. Um, and how do we reconcile some of those challenges from, from an environmental standpoint, uh, maintaining our, um, our environmental standards that we um, try to adhere at at home? So we'd love to get some perspectives um, on this issue, because obviously it's, it's one that is going to grow in importance as we start to look towards moving to decarbonize our respective economies. So deep sea mining, uh, for one thing, I'm skeptical about the economics around that, even if you put aside the, 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 the very potentially significant environmental issues that have to be managed in that. Uh, the economics of, of trying to do that just don't seem to work at the, at the present time. And so one of the good things that's come out of the process since the US and Canada started their critical minerals dialogue in 2017 is there is a comprehensive mapping of where the resources are and how and, and, and essentially their accessibility. So this is what I mentioned in my prepared remarks around, we need to start thinking about how do we get financing in place in order to get these projects developed in North America that's the number one. And when you go abroad, there needs to be uh, third-party verification, ESG, uh, and, uh, and, and other metrics that are made available so that you can show if I'm mining lithium in Bolivia, that I'm doing it to the best environmental standards uh, in order for that to, uh, to play out. But there's also an awful lot of lithium in Nevada that uh, are in the form of claystones. And so there's a big opportunity to create jobs and economic opportunity in some of these harder hit mining towns in Nevada as well. And so it's a matter, as President Biden has said, of being clear about uh, good relations with First Nations, good relations with, uh, uh, with uh, local environmental groups and applying the best in class standards to uh, uh, to these particular processes. Yeah, and do you have any um, any uh, uh, parting uh, comments regarding strategic uh, minerals? Sure, Richard. Just to add on the fact that you know this is a space that we're working very actively on the uh, on the business outreach elements of our bilateral uh, action plan, and uh, we and part of our role is really to you know keep in keep in close uh, coordination with Natural Resources Canada and ICED. Uh, and also to work with stakeholders to make sure that th there's an understanding of what the opportunities are as we look at different elements of the supply chain and, deter and determining how from a supply chain security perspective, uh, from a business development perspective, what are the deals that make the most sense so that we've got the access and we've got reliability uh, in these and these resources that are going to be of utmost importance. We've actually got an event tomorrow, uh, a, a roundtable that we've put together with uh with NRCAN and, and I said bringing stakeholders together. And there's a, a, a reasonably consistent stream of activities to make sure that uh, the opportunities are being made aware. And again, as, as US and Canadian companies are engaged, bringing their best practices to this type of work. We had a, um, a question, Eric, and maybe you can take, take this on um, by one of our um, participants um, in the forum about the 
Canadian commercial relationship with Colombia. Um, obviously, um, the focus of this forum has been U.S.-Canada, but um, Canada has also been very active um, um, in the broader hemispheric relationships um, with countries in Latin America. And um, obviously, um, both countries are committed to um, revitalize, revitalizing the Latin American economies post-COVID. So would appreciate um, your perspective on that on that front. Sure. There's a so there's a Canada Colombia free trade agreement. Uh, this has been an important uh, relationship uh, for Canada in Latin America. Uh, obviously, coming out of uh, coming out of COVID, there will be an important uh, opportunity to look at how do you drive more investment into markets such as Colombia. Uh, Canada is active there, particularly in the mining space, but there are are others as well. And you know, I think Colombia is a bit of an underappreciated market that I think companies need to deal with. I had a recent meeting with someone who has developed a very interesting company out of the uh, the Ruta Na infrastructure in Medellin, and so there's a great interesting burgeoning tech sector in Colombia. So uh, I think it's a relationship which perhaps hasn't been as closely um, uh, prioritized as, as it necessarily needs to be. But coming out of COVID, I think uh, Colombia would be uh, a good partner with whom to take those advantages from the Canada-Colombia free trade agreement and to, uh, to amplify them very significantly. Um, if we could turn to the Arctic, um, it was mentioned a couple times as, as part of the um, um, earlier uh, presentations. Um, obviously, the U.S. And, and Canada have a strategic interest there, um, as does Russia. Um, um, what can you say about the growing bilateral trade investment um, relationship in the, in the context of the Arctic Circle and future opportunities, as well as security risks? Uh, maybe Ian and, and Eric, if you want to take that on. Sure, I can start. Uh, just to note that it is it was a specific uh, point of discussion in the development of the roadmap. And so while the Department of Commerce has some niche issues that are associated with supporting the Arctic dialogue, uh, one piece that we are looking at is business development. And so working closely with our Canadian counterparts to understand what the opportunities are and making sure that we're connecting interested U.S. businesses to, uh, to leverage those opportunities appropriately is something that we'll continue to work on. So I think it's a space that's going to be uh, evolving. Um, there are, um, again, there are a number of players active, active within the U.S. government and the, and the Arctic development space. So again, this will, be, this will be an area of focus for a number of us for some time. The U.S. and Canada are both Arctic nations, and through the Arctic Council, it's very important that they uh, work together on trying to uh, responsibly develop infrastructure in the region. I think um, if you look at the, the the great work of the Woodrow Wilson Center Polar Institute, uh, they've done a lot of interesting things around keeping track of projects that are ongoing in the Arctic region. And when I, I look at what's happening in the Canadian North, I think there's a real opportunity to, to perhaps step up infrastructure development uh, in the region and uh, to look at even things such as providing uh, infrastructure and security in the event of, uh, that uh, that the use of the Northwest Passage becomes more significant, because that's a long way between 
major supply depots and uh, and emergency services and things of that nature. So the Arctic is changing, but we also must keep in mind that we need to do this uh, in close cooperation with the people who actually live in the Arctic and to look at ways that we can both uh, improve their economic opportunities and to work on things such as uh, reducing the cost of food. I mean, when, when a tomato costs $8 to buy in a Callaway, you know that there's space to to look at how do we reduce the cost of food. So some of the innovations about uh, smaller greenhouses and other, uh, and other projects to, to grow more food locally is something that is important. But this is a, a big area where I think both from a security perspective and also from uh, in terms of economic interconnection is something which is uh, really important for Canada, the US and other stakeholders in the Arctic to work on. Eric, thank you so much. And Ian, I, I want at this point, I think we're going we're gonna to transition to our final um, uh, presentation for the day. But I want to thank um, Ian um, Saunders, um, Eric Miller, Colin Robertson, and Kirsten uh, Stewart for their um, presentations uh, and participation in this panel. So thank you so much for your participation. And we look forward to seeing you at uh, future um, Institute programs. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.